Gather around the campfire, kids. It's time to tell the story of the Pod Boys. First, there was Eat Shit Harold, Matisse Van Rossum. I'm Ben Sheets, and I'm here to tell the story of Squidward's suicide. Oh, God. I'm the story that's better left untold. Cleveland Motion. Ooh, mysterious. On the subject of mystery, can you guess what we're talking about today? Well, if you listened to last week's episode, probably. Is it Rise of the Planet of the Apes? <laughs> probably, yes. What is it? <laughs> Uh, We're going to be talking about the new film, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, directed by Andre Overdahl. Better than I would have (laughs) done. Director of uh, Troll Hunter, uh, which I forgot uh, last time when I was like, I've never heard of this guy. (laughs) Troll Hunter's movie I really like. I love Troll Hunter. And you know who else loves Troll Hunter? My dad, because that's a great dad movie. And I love it for that. I like I like Troll Hunter. Uh, I think it stands up pretty or it holds up pretty well. I watched it not long ago. It it is a good movie. It's an absolute Disney ride. It's a better Disney movie than half the Disney movies that are coming out these days. Well, I felt I felt like I was on like the like Viking ride, you know, at Epcot. Fuck me. I love Troll Hunter to bits. Is it? nuanced is it like a masterpiece fuck no but it's great at what it does well this isn't a review of troll hunter but it is by the same director i reviewed it also produced by guillermo del toro and we saw at the end credits that he also wrote the screenplay or the screen story the screen story which which probably just there were several he was in between like two other writers on that credit also so it he was at least he was at least involved in the writing process Mm -hmm. but uh this film is i i don't know if you could say based but more inspired by the uh series of three children's books scary stories to tell in the dark that were published in the 80s by uh Alvin Schwartz, Damn. Uh, featuring the illustrations of, I looked it up, uh, Stephen Gamel. And I bring that up because if you're like any of us, growing up with those books, those illustrations are still to this day some of the spookiest things I've ever seen in my life. So I remember very vividly first coming across your copy of it, Tease, when we were kids. I got him at the book fair at school. Yeah, God. The Scholastic fucking book fair. Yeah. yeah it takes me back. <laughs> and I, I remember very, very specifically, like, you showing the book to me, and I only saw a couple pages from it, and I was just terrified. And uh, you read The Viper, like, the I am the window viper. Like, uh, oh, you know, to, yeah. To vipe your windows. You know, the window viper. Like, uh, the, the comedic one uh, and some of the others. And I thought, and you sold it to me as like, no, see, they're like, they're not that scary or whatever. And then I took it home and went through the other ones that are scary and saw the rest of the illustrations and had repeating nightmares over them. Well, that, that's, like, it that, terrified me as a child. That's the thing. Like, a lot of the, the stories that are in those books are, like, very surface level, like... Uh, like urban legends and campfire, like campfire yeah, stories. Yeah. They're, they're pretty A lot of them are, you know, ones that you've probably heard variations of at some point. And there's the one about the guy finding a stray dog that turns out to be like a, a rabid sewer rat. The stories themselves are, I would say, nothing terribly special. Some of them are, are 
There's some there's legitimately some are, spooky ones. There are some spooky ones. There are some ones that get like weirdly surreal, and I like those. But it's yeah. those fucking illustrations that are so like abstract and expressionistic. Just that those like those ink washes and yeah. they're so messy and textured and drippy. And yeah, they feel gooey and they're usually not like literal representations of things in the story. They're they're more sort of ethereal representations. Oh yeah, like shadowy ink washes and then like eyes and mouths and just the the stuff that is still terrifying, like yeah. as an adult, honestly. No, the the stories, is, as you said, are, are campfire fun stories, which, you know, as a child can still be scary. But, like, as an adult, coming back to the stories themselves, you know, Harold, you know, like, where's my toe and all the other shit, that's not terrifying. But fuck me, those illustrations, they, they, leave, a, they leave a real mark because they get to the primal, like, shock factor of well yeah um, especially like flipping through a book and like reading the stories and then like turning a page and just being confronted with a new monstrosity that you weren't expecting yeah those a lot of those uh stories are firmly imprinted in my brain even though it's been probably at least 10 years if not more since i've actually read them Mm -hmm. yeah i i think my mom probably still has my copies in, in the house back down in Bama. I went back to the illustrations fairly recently, about six months ago, for a character design I was working on mm. for It Stares Back, our horror game. I, I looked up a couple of different references for this this character design of someone who's been like consumed by a, a Lovecraftian being. And my f- main references were Tetsuo the Bullet Man, Junji Ito, and then scary stories to tell in the dark. Those illustrations pair they they hold up right next to Ito and yeah. you know all these other like horror illustrators who were not writing for children. Like right. mind you, like those are those are very adult stories. And, and that these are very distinctly like children's books. Mm-hmm. Like the the stories are like children's scary stories and how that got paired with these illustrations I I'm very curious about like what that story is how they convinced like how they sold that to the publisher well you like, know yeah that that whole era like from the 80s up through the 90s and on you get those circumstances of like uh whether it's like TV shows or children's books or whatever that are that are published like more for the financial motivation than the the artistic motivation. Right. I don't think this is necessarily the case. And in a lot of those, they sneak stuff by. They got away with a lot. That's <laughs> yeah, really well, what I'm getting at. Like, you have to remember, too, in the mid to late 80s, the slasher boom was at full tilt. And they had, like, the Friday the 13th TV show. And oh, all of them were several movies in. Right. And, you know, like, had toys and whatnot. Um, it's true. There's definitely sort of a... a commodification of horror towards children directed towards children yeah um, and it carried on like up and up until like the early 2000s um i referenced this fairly recently to you guys but not on the podcast you know it, it reminds me of um how like invader zim lasted as long as it did you know like these like really horrifying like you know like concepts but they're they're packaged for children right or even like courage the cowardly dog oh yeah that's another great example that that also around the same time yeah like was i found to be terrifying that's Um, one i can relate to like uh then the reason i really bring that up is because like the illustrations from johnny the homicidal maniac which were the same uh, person who created invader zim were very similar to scary stories like that same like ink wash you know like Mm. jagged edges and imagery it always baffles me it's like they they saw that art and then said, yeah, let's package like something like this for kids. Well, <laughs> like, wow, 
I, I think that that impacted Guillermo del Toro as well mm-hmm. to want to produce this film and see that it was made. I do think it's a little bit strange that he didn't make it himself, but like it's very much right up his alley and he's referenced his fingerprints are on it he's referenced the books before in interviews and talks about his inspirations and the illustrations and i would what i'll say to the movie's credit is that a lot of the translation is not of the stories themselves but of the illustrations to a different medium. I do think they capture the spirit of the books yes. pretty well. What I, uh, what I really appreciate about this movie is that it's very much about the power of stories and that sort of being the evil force and ultimately at the end the redeemable force. But it's not just like we're going to do an anthology of these spooky kids ghost stories. It's going to be like, well, no, the horror is about the telling of the stories themselves and how they infect people. And there's also, of course, the visual element to that, which they translate. And I thought that that was actually a really good approach. I do too. I enjoyed a lot of those elements. Uh, Before we get too far into the film, I had one more point about like the periphery of it. And that was um, going back to Del Toro. Uh, I saw some sort of comparatives with his own work with uh, like Pan's Labyrinth, for Mm -hmm. instance. Now, I wouldn't compare these films necessarily, but when it comes to children, like coming of age and seeing horror, like there's, there are tying themes that he sort of carried through several of his films. Absolutely. That's like Del Toro's jam. Well, the interesting thing with that is uh, where those movies were very adult horror movies aimed towards kids. I feel like this was almost the opposite in some ways. Like a kid's horror movie that's sort of aimed towards adults. Or even, you know, like, I I think this movie is kind of aimed towards kids with very adult horror at times, you know? And the thing is, I find this... So the books are packaged. I find this uh, a really interesting kind of subgenre of horror, of kind of horror for kids, because I think this movie could be packaged towards kids in a lot of ways. I, yeah, you know, I think there's you could, no blood, there's no gore. I think you could comfortably take your kids to see this as long as they're they don't get too easily scared. Yeah. The there's, book. Some, there's some spooky stuff in this movie for sure, but it is the kind of horror movie that is very easily graspable by like a child's mind. Yeah, I would say to any parent, just use the book as a litmus test. Yeah, that's a good if way your to kids, do it. Yeah, if your kids, that's another thing. Like, I I know that, like, we grew up with these books, and there was a generation before us that did as well since they came out in the 80s. But, like, I really wonder how much that still exists. Like, how, how are younger kids, like, do they know these books? I genuinely well, have uh, no idea. My mom's a teacher, and I do know that they do still exist, and they oh, yeah. are still around. I know they're still in oh, they're for sure. Yeah, yeah. Do her, still, do her students read them? I mean, it's not as common sure. as they used to be, but they are still read and stuff. Awesome. Right. That's awesome. I, I know they're definitely still in print, but like when, when I started hearing the buzz around this movie and like seeing the trailers and stuff, I was like, well, this is very much like marketed for people my age and a little bit older. This yeah. is for oh, people yeah. who grew up with the books. And to be clear, too, like I, I know I, I preface by saying like how much those books like shocked me and horrified me as a child, but I'm all for it. In a good like, way. Like, yeah, that's, like that's some of the it, stuff that got me into horror to be 
at the point where I am now. Like, yeah. that's some of my earliest, like, fascination with horror came from those books. Like, I read those books over and over and over again, just looked at the pictures all the time. Oh, yeah, and it's it's a good way to, like, in a, in a safe fantasy environment, prep kids for the real world. Yeah. It's fine by me. Like, I, I think it's it's okay to get a little, you know, see this. Yeah, and I think this movie does a great job of, while it caters in a lot of ways to that nostalgia audience of people who grew up reading them, mm-hmm. it does a great job of carrying the torch and passing the torch sure. down to another generation who might just be getting introduced to these, you know? Like, I think these are a perfect entry point to stuff like horror yeah. for kids like that. Where it's still very spooky for kids, but it doesn't go too graphic yeah. or too adult I mean, in its themes. I do remember floating severed heads, like in the illustrations. Oh yeah, like they're it's. Well, I mean, it's there, pretty there's up. severed body parts in this movie. Yeah, you know, like. They don't go light on the like the. But I would say like, but it's all like it's all when we're talking purely... about like kids is a pretty broad thing. Like probably like seven or eight. Would y'all say? Yeah, but the I think an important distinction too is that yeah, there's some there's definitely some very grotesque macabre imagery, but it's all within the realm of fantasy. You can't really like try to make a tie to the real world and i think that those kinds of movies like i've brought it up on the podcast before but stuff like silence of the lambs and shit like that is much harder to show to young kids because it relies on the horror of the real world and like knowing that there are real monsters out there Mm -hmm. and that is hard to grasp for for younger children i think and it it tends to leave more of a lasting impact. I was pretty young when I saw Silence of the Lambs the first time, and it was definitely a very, very impactful film. But like stuff like this is like at the end of the day, you know, it's fantasy. It's easy for you to say it's like, oh, it's just a movie. You know, there's not really scarecrows out there turning people into scarecrows. You can close a book, right? Exactly. You know, it's, uh, well, it's clear. W- let's get into that scarecrow thing a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, a, that's yeah. a decent enough segue. I think uh, this movie. When it works the best, it's an anthology movie in a lot of ways. You know, you have a lot of short stories, uh, much like the book, of different horrifying things. It gave me a lot of uh, trick or treat vibes. Yeah, yeah. It definitely, it definitely has more of an overarching narrative, and like, there's a central cast of protagonists but the way it treats its horror set pieces is very much the same way like they're all distinct and they all center around uh, a self-contained little story you know that fit into the the larger narrative and i think you're right that when it really succeeds it's in those sort of more anthology moments I think the overarching narrative has a lot of problems. Oh, oh yeah, I, I, I would say that's probably the the weakest Whoa. element of it. Though I will say, even in that stuff, I thought for the first half of the movie, it was written cleverly enough oh, it's, it was that it carried well. me through it. Oh, well, yeah, I did not feel that um, way. I guess we should just give the overarching idea. Um, there's a group of kids in 1968 who uh, are spending Halloween... Um, Getting some revenge on bullies. They end up going to a haunted house of sorts in the town. It's mm-hmm. a small town. They kind of cover the story of Sarah Bellows. Yeah, the child murderer. They find a secret passage down to the basement where they find this book of Sarah's stories. The stories start writing themselves. Oh. 
Yep, exactly. Yep. Yeah. And then out come the spookies. Last podcast, I prefaced by saying I was very concerned going into this film, and I said it'd go to the car right over. Specifically about the special effects, because as we've already talked about Agnosium, the illustrations are fucking phenomenal. Right. And they're, they're very wet, they're very textured. I hold them in very high regard. And I was very worried because seeing them rendered out in the light of day in CG with whatever co- other context put around them, it could have been very detrimental. My expectations were entirely subverted, and the monsters were my favorite thing about the film, and Same. I loved them to bits. I thought I thought their, their execution was, uh, well, with a big old asterisk, I thought their execution was great visually. They were very textured. All of them like had their own kind of qualities to them and grip, just gooey and even inky at times. I, I was very pleased, and very and pleased with that. There's the added aspect of seeing them move move as well which i thought was really well done that all of the monsters and stuff like had very different ways of moving that sort of suited them the herald scarecrow i thought was particularly well done like i mean they they pulled it straight from the illustration like in terms of realizing that illustration it looks great but then when you finally get to see him move i thought that was really well done it wasn't just it didn't just come across like i was afraid it would like a guy in a scarecrow costume like it felt like it was cobbled together and that it was sort of like struggling to move the hollow midsection was great yeah like, i thought that was fun one of my favorite sequences was definitely the jock getting like converting oh turning into a scarecrow it was great yeah, that was sick. very visceral sprouting was great sprouting too. straw out of his body yeah and you could just hear of all skin. of it like crinkling and yeah. like poking through him and way more terrifying than like any actual gratuity like honestly like that's the like thing. a straw like coming out of his mouth as he's in agony like that was fucking horrifying excellent excellently done because in the actual story the scarecrow if i recall skins a couple of people and like dries their hides on the roof of the barn yeah because he's got um, that le- leather facey kind of look right to him. uh which is you know so i was expecting it to be that but i th- i think this film is pg-13 i didn't check i think because there's no blood can't be flying people um yeah so that kind of doesn't surprise me but i thought what they decided to do was pretty creative and also spooky yeah yeah uh, I, I thought it worked excellent yeah. i was thinking about it going in because I didn't know what the film was rated, and I would be curious to know. But I was hoping it was a lower rating. You know, horror for kids thing we were talking about. Yeah, oh, that's a good idea. And and also because you can absolutely carry through horror into uh, it's without PG, it's PG thirteen. Yeah, without an R rating. Uh, like I'm, I'm a big advocate for finding other means than the the rated standards for for terrifying people. So very pleased with that. Yeah, all, all the monsters I could gush about. Well, I I find it, you know, much like the book where, like, the illustrations carry some of the shortcomings of the narrative. Mm -hmm. It's the same way in this movie where, like, the strengths of the character designs and the creatures really carried some of my shortcomings and problems with the overarching story. Yeah, totally. Um, Because in a lot of ways, the overarching story is very run of the mill yeah there's a there's a spooky there's a spooky ghost witch who is killing people with magic how how do you stop the witch you know it's uh in that way it 
it almost feels fitting because it's like the oldest kids ghost story in the book like mm-hmm. don't go in the spooky haunted house there's a witch who lives there magic you know which is totally fine honestly okay like if we're breaking down the beats of the story yeah. like from like location to location and like what events occur largely i have no problems i had i had some strong issues on the motivation of location to location because literally every location was motivated by going to another place to read something. <laughs> right. Yeah. Literally every it's one. Scary stories, Cleveland. They gotta read to, like they gotta read they, the story. They've already got their magic book and they don't really utilize it that much. It's okay to have like one scene, it's like, okay, cool, we have to read the library records on this and find this newspaper thing. But then they also go to the hospital to find more records on something. And then right. they go to the 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 other person. It's just like it, it, it doesn't feel like a detective novel. It feels like the kids are just being brought along and they have no, they don't really have any agency over it. They're just being brought by events my, to the next My favorite thing. part of that is there's a, a quippy one-liner from one of the characters and he's the like, oh, really this fun. is why I don't read. Yeah, this is why <laughs> I don't read books after they try to burn the magic book and it yeah. doesn't catch fire. I wish that all of the kids had the same level of camp to them. I'm not saying they were all like that archetype, but... That kid was great, and I hated all the others. I hated it. Oh, I didn't. They hate were them. so bland. Like I thought, they were kind of bland. Like the the new kid who drifted in from out of town. Uh, he was pretty bland. What is your opinion on them approaching race issues with that? I character? thought it was very generic. Yeah, they didn't. With they like didn't, wet back ridden on his. They car didn't say and stuff. anything about no, it. No, they, they just, just like they just had the stereotypical bully character, like be stereotypically calling him, racist, calling him a racial slur, like and, right and because bad guy, and then like does the 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 thing on his car. Like it's just it's so blatant. I, I don't know. Like there wasn't there wasn't any message to it or anything. Like, well, right, there wasn't any like that was my thing. It's like they it didn't it just, hold any power. By like, the end of by the end of the movie, it just felt like none of that had a point. And in that case, like, why, unless you're going to try to say something about it, why broach it at all? Right. Yeah. And, it, and, it's, and it's, also, it's, like... Uh, yeah, and, like, I have I have no problem with, like, that being, like, a contextual thing, because it was in the time. O- sure. Also, big point that we should definitely notice that it's set in the 60s. You know, and it's, I have, it's I during wanna, the draft, and we'll, we'll cover that. Uh, I want to talk to but, you guys about that. But, well, yeah, specifically to answer, like, your the point you brought up, I didn't like how it was introduced or, or carried through. And I wouldn't have hated the him, like, trying to prove himself point of the narrative well, no, it didn't... as much if he was a more compelling character and right. I wanted to like him more. He was, but they he, give you nothing. His whole, his whole, like, line of sympathy is that he's an outsider and a bully calls him a racial slur right. like and, that. And that's... also, like, the the comic relief kid in the back of the car, when he first introduces him, is like, hey, can I see your switchblade? And, like, just assumes that he has a switchblade. Why does... Because he's a drifter. Because he's a drifter. He's a drifter. Okay. That's, the way, that's the way I read. Because he's Hispanic? That, no, that's... Because, like, that's mm, what I... Exactly. Okay. Like, that's what I was concerned about. That's I was like... Not, that's not how I read, read it. it at all. You read it as, like, a, a 50s-style, like, drifter person who has a switchblade. Right. That's he's how a, I read He's a mysterious stranger okay. from but out of town. But I could see the reading. They find, because he's been living in his car. Because it's in the same scene Let where he's also called blade. a wetback. And right. Yeah. Unfortunately. And, like, it's... It's in that same sequence, and then the kid also stereotypes him, not for being like, um, not for being Hispanic, but for, but for being a drifter. That's yeah, and, that's the and way like, I read it. And then it. also that stereotype 
is brought to fruition like because he has he a does have blade. a switchblade yeah. and i was just like oh you know like and it, it just it made me a little I, I felt a little weird about it like it's it's not not enough to like call detriment to the film or or anything and i, I know that like you know, like Del Toro had a lot to do with the film. Well, like while we're while he, we're, he normally is very good about bringing up those sorts of issues. While we're stuff. on that subject, the racial thing and like why bring it up and not having a message stuff. Here's my other question for you guys, and I'll preface this by saying I liked that this film was set in the '60s. I liked the '60s as a backdrop, but why do you guys think they chose the '60s? Two reasons. I, there are a couple. So, of, I have a couple. I of think thoughts, one but, reason is because. 80s nostalgia is starting to get stale yes that's exactly um, that, i i thought that they did it because they didn't want to have another stranger things rip off yep and group this, of teenagers outcast teenagers solving a supernatural mystery and, i think that's largely and the second yeah. part is so much of their movie is predicated on reading that they can't have internet Yes, I, that's another good point. Yeah. I, that being said, I, like, I'm very glad this was not a modern film. I liked the 60s as a backdrop. I was wondering if it's because like Del Toro was was a kid in the 60s growing up and that these are like the books weren't out then but the writer was probably also a kid growing up in the 60s mm. and probably thinking about scary stories and stuff. I'm wondering if there's some kind of contextual thing there. I'm glad you brought up Stranger Things because I I feel a little differently about it. I think that this this film was absolutely considering and utilizing Stranger Things be, because of those those factors. You know, the kids. You know, like facing off against a horror. Right, but it didn't. And but it didn't were, feel still, like it's still Stranger a period things. piece. It doesn't, and I'll definitely get into that. But like, it, it's it's still a period piece, and it's to the degree where it's same but different. Right. Like sure. it's well utilized to a degree that you could sell it to a board of executives. But I mean, that being said, like, being like, like hey, it's like Stranger Things, period. You well, know, I mean, like they, I think that was one of the biggest reasons they did not put it in the 80s. Though. And, it, and it, because they, same but they're, different. They're putting intentional separations in there. The story of like children defeating supernatural monsters is a tale literally as old as time. Like, right. Those I mean, are... because Stranger Things is pulling off of, like, the Stephen King, or the, um, sorry, the Steven Spielberg films and whatnot, Goonies right, but, and whatnot. But and, even, and also, it's a genre... But and, even and, older than that, like, in mythology and stuff, sure. too. Like, that's, it's... So I, I think that, I think that, yeah, because there have been, there has been so much of that, like, 80s nostalgia and, like, the popularity of Stranger Things and It, too, which is also set in in the 80s um has a similar cast and it has a similar cast uh i think that a lot of it is probably like well we have kids i I absolutely think that the protagonist in this case should be kids if it had been adults it would have been a mess no no no. and and we can't do it in the 80s so when 60s i guess yeah and to be clear like also i still think it was a good choice Mm. just because it's sellable to executives doesn't mean it isn't i was very happy that it was my concern is that still you can't avoid the Stranger Things comparative, especially when it sure. comes to the child actors, which is where it was by far my biggest issue with this film. I didn't think the kids were bad. I, I thought the I main didn't think they were that bad either. I thought the main character was very flat. Like the girl? her her delivery, like for instance, when the drifter character has like they come she's out the, of the house. She's a straight man though. And like wet back is written on this drifter's car. Her delivery there is just like, Oh, I'm really sorry this is happening to you. And it's just the driest, flattest thing. Her line where she says, like, the stories are reading you. 
Yeah, it's was, really that, flat, that was a bad. Yeah, like, that's, that's, bad, bad line. that's bad script though. Yeah. That's 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 the fault it's, of the script. It doesn't help. Like they're they're fine. Give me give me any actor who could say the line. The stories are reading you. And no, I wouldn't. Like, and I wouldn't I, laugh. I agree, at it. but like, and that's why I didn't bring up that line first. A lot of her dialogue is delivered very dryly. She's the straight man sounding board character, though. I mean, I I will agree with you that the. Uh, that uh, the the drifter character Ramon, I think that he is very flat. Right. Well, I think and that boring. like just a straight man just reacts to the scenarios around them in a in a relatable and compelling way. A straight man is not a dry man, right? Like, and she was dry, and like that. That's my issue. I mean, she wasn't my favorite, but she didn't bother me. I thought she was fine. One thing I want to cover quickly before we move on on the 60s thing is uh what is your guys's opinion on using nixon so heavily? yeah okay that was another thing that i wanted to bring up which is what made me tie it to the whole like racial thing is like what was the point of the constant references to nixon in vietnam i kept thinking that there was going to be some kind of payoff for that and there wasn't the drifter avoiding the draft is about it Right, but then he get, then he decides to go to Vietnam at the end, which like what is the f- weird in in the establishing <laughs> in the establishing shots of the town, we even see the Nixon posters that somebody has turned the X into a, of his name into a swastika, yeah. and they go to see the uh, the the old Haitian lady mm-hmm. who who was friends with the witch girl or whatever, and her daughter's like. Tricky Dicky, what kind of name is that for a president? And then the the sheriff later is like, "Yeah, you're. It's election night. You're gonna owe me ten uh, five bucks when uh, when Nixon wins tonight." And it's like all of this stuff. And then we find out that the drifter has been on the run because he's a draft dodger. Because like he even says, like they sent my brother home in pieces. They just send people there to die. It's like, yes, we know this. Yes, Vietnam was fucked up. Absolutely. And then at the end, after they stop the witch, he gets on the bus to go to fucking boot camp to be shipped away to Vietnam. Right, which means that, like, the Jenga man was right, like, calling him a coward. And it's like, no, that's not cowardly. Like, fuck the draft. Right, he's like, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid Sarah's gonna, in my story, she's gonna, she's gonna see I'm a coward. And, like, the girl even says, like, no, you're not a coward. It's like, what is the message of that? Like, yeah, I, I was. Then so he should. Then he should have gone like, to he Vietnam. He was getting on the bus, like because he was accepting the draft. There was a soldier at the door to yeah. the bus with a clipboard asking his name. Yeah, Fuck he me. was for sure. Fuck he was me. for sure going that, off. That's dumb. That's yeah, what is dumb. the message of that? There isn't one, and they make a big deal talking about like how fucked up Nixon was, and like people go off to Nam to die, like it's a it's a useless war. Things that we all know now, but then they still send the main one of the main characters off to Nam at the end. To die. Is it supposed to be that through dealing with these supernatural horrors, he's conquered his fear? He's, and he's not scared and of he's death not, anymore. And he's not scared of death anymore, so he's going to go off and fight the Viet Cong in a criminal war where he's almost certainly going to die? Yeah, because no, yeah, like, the, the Jenga man, like the monster that, that comes well. after him, like repeatedly calls him a coward. Right. And it's just like... And it's so, ma- so the and monster it's, was right. Like, is that what you're saying? And like, it's he a man. To... It's a man in pieces who all of the pieces move individually yeah. with a mind of their own. And his brother and was his sent, brother was sent pieces, home in pieces. Like, like, what? I get that that's supposed to be him facing his fear, but the moral of that story should not be "I'm not afraid anymore. I'm gonna go off to Vietnam." Yeah, and die like my brother did. Like, right? 
You know, like, like what the what the fuck? It made little to no sense. I will say, up until the end part, I liked the fact that he was a draft dodger. Sure. I yeah, thought sure. that was a good character arc, and I, that was one of the, the few things I didn't see coming. That was nice. Yeah, um, no, I think that makes it relatable. But how they closed that arc was garbage. Yeah. Yeah. No bueno. Uh, and just, yeah, u- universally, I... I felt little to nothing for the characters who were being chased by these monsters, and I felt like it kind of t- detracted from the monsters a little bit because you're not getting an opportunity to be concerned for these characters, and that was instead replaced with jump scares, which is there are a lot of jump point. scares in this movie. Yeah, is the editing is probably my least favorite thing about this movie. I was not a fan of a lot of it. There are a lot of great moments during the monster sequences that I thought were well edited, but not other than, when it comes to the jump scares. Other than the jump scares, what were... Because, I mean, jump scares are their own thing. I don't think you can say a, a film's editing is bad because of jump scares. What what other than the jump scares bothered you about the editing? The I dialogue thought, sequences, it was really rushed. It felt the there was no pacing for uh, any, like, conversational moments. They were already moving on to the next scene, like, in some cases, while they were still discussing it. For instance, there's a, there's a line where the... They're reading the newspaper about it. Their friend who was dressed up as um, Polnicella at the beginning was um, has been killed or whatever, and he he makes a joke. And before there's even, like, a moment to breathe to really get, like, the girl's reaction, he just says, oh, well, our friend would have really liked that. But he's, like, already just finishing up the joke. Like, there isn't a second to, like, let that line sit for us to take any of that in. There's There's no time, and it's on to the next scene. And, like, there's no breathing room in that movie. Like, if it had just slowed down a little bit, like, given me some more with the characters. The problem is that the characters were, like, flatly delivered and so they were just trying well, to like yeah that's the that's it. the the interesting thing to me is like i didn't think the editing needed more space to breathe because during the movie i was just waiting for them to get to the next set piece like i could care less about the overarching story yeah i was and, there for the spooks yeah and i kind of disagree that like they needed to give it more time to breathe i think it was paced pretty decently well if anything, I think they could have cut more of the overarching story out. And I mean, yeah, because it was Garbo. Like, I agree. I-, I was also, like, wanting the next monster to come up, but the sequences between the monsters were, like, just felt so, like, rushed and weird. Like, why does she call her dad just to fucking traumatize him and then not ask for a ride back? And the police chief is just like, oh, cool, you're not, your dad's not picking you up. Guess I'll lock you in a fucking cell. Because that makes sense. Well, because <laughs> she's she's established that people in the town growing up have made her believe that she's responsible for her mother leaving as a child. And she calls her dad because she's afraid that she is going to die because of the spooky stuff and that she's going to disappear. And her dad is going to think that she ran off just like her mom did thinking that her dad has already been abandoned calling him because she knows he can't she can't go home to him because she has to see this out but that if something happens to her that I didn't run away I wouldn't abandon you yeah. like so then like what does the dad it's, do it's then? a little bit it's a little he calls bit... the police like he, he goes and tries to find his daughter but like, that's not, like, that's, doesn't... that's the script though that's not the editing that's the script true the, the problems with the script I'll it's, give not, you that. it's not with the editing. The problem's with the script. Yeah. Like, I mean, the problem's it's... with both from where I'm sitting. But 
Yeah, no, that that is absolutely a, that specifically is a script issue. That, yeah, um, it's a script problem. Yeah, realistically, her dad probably would have immediately called the cops and been like, "Hey, my daughter just called me. She's being really weird. She's talking about dying. Like, I we need to look for her." And the cops would immediately say, "Oh, she's here. Like, we got her." <laughs> well, yeah, that is absolutely how that scene would go. I'm not. I'm definitely yeah. not arguing that. Yeah, and like, you could you could do anything to like make, the, the make mo- me think that it's not going to go that way. The like, motivation you could, you could for have her calling come up. The motivation for her calling her dad is there. Just the way that they she handles it. Just the well, no, the way that the film concludes that series of events is nonsense. Yeah, and well, also the fact that like the dad like doesn't have a reason for telling her why the mom left. I don't give a shit. Yeah. I don't need to. Right, but the daughter, like, if the dad can't yeah. give her a reason, like, she's going to keep thinking it's her. That's a shitty dad. I mean, well, I sure... think she does know is the thing. I don't think she's in the dark. Well, he well even, she blames herself. He, he even says on the phone, it's like, you know you're not the reason your mom left. I've told you that before. So, like, he has, he has told her that, and maybe he doesn't know why the mom left. She probably, she could have just up and left. Like, people just do that sometimes. The point is that the whole subplot is not necessary. I agree with you, but the motivation for her calling her dad is sound based on what they've set up. The problem is, why does it matter that her mom disappeared when they were kids like how is that relevant to the story overall right and it's so it's not really the purpose can't get me on to the next spooky exactly so from a writing perspective the purpose of that scene becomes her calling her dad and traumatizing and them just traumatizing each other in the scene moving on it's not that's not character development that's not movement that's just a sequence that occurs it's, that makes that doesn't have any yeah, application it's, it's incomplete character development yes they try to give that subplot as a sympathetic character development for her character i don't think she needs it this is a scary movie about scary stories get me on to the scary things just have the characters be fun vessels for me to view this the movie's almost two hours long and i think they could they could easily cut 20 minutes out of it sure um by taking moments out instead of handling them in a rushed way that feels sloppy like sure and that's a huge part of it right like her mom leaving her could have well played into an overarching like aspect of the narrative she has abandonment problems she's concerned about losing people around her you know from her own means which she does she she blames herself for her friends disappearing and whatnot but that can have like some degree of like give her some degree of motivation with like the monsters and stuff at the end having to do with the banishment of the monsters with having to do with her general fear of of being abandoned but that's never really played up like like when when the monsters you know like come for her and her sequence that doesn't really tie into that so she she takes agency by like writing her own story about that which which almost ties in like that could have been waiter for her to say like hey i never knew why my mom left but i can fill in the gaps and i can like make this a point and like i would rewrite my own narrative that way and like it almost works for that but it's not played out that way i think it's i think it's a little bit half-baked but i would say that her abandonment issues and her blaming herself for things does play into her story at the end because they put her in the position of Sarah Bellows of the witch yes. who we learn has you know was very much like the Kennedys she was the embarrassment uh child that they locked in the basement and never let out of the house and 
ended up blaming for the poisoning of a bunch of kids in town that was really from the the mercury from the family's paper mill Something. whatever yeah but that's why at the end when they go back to the house like which we never see by the way sorry yeah. to interrupt you no, but like it's, there's a lot of that in the movie another, and that's another a huge point yeah, yeah it's another it's really like, half baked there thing. was so much in the film that's like that's just offhandedly mentioned that's never resolved or referenced in any way other than just by like dialogue and it felt really cheap to me the whole like Sarah- just being like oh yeah she you know like with the paper mill whatever else like that we never see a paper mill we never like get any relevance with that like we don't learn too much about the kids who were killed beforehand if anything and we don't see any of it that was very weird to me like it's, it's in dialogue while other things are yeah, going on it, and there's no correlation between that and the actual narrative the, and especially in a story where it's about stories coming into reality you don't get that much of it with so many of these small little nods and and conversational points it feels kind of fruitless the whole cerebella's mystery is fucking stupid and my least favorite part of the movie but my my point is that when she is put into the shoes of sarah bellows and she is like reliving that moment as sarah when she's hiding from her family and they drag her down into the basement and lock her in a windowless room you know that does play into her uh set like being betrayed by your loved ones like Mm -hmm. her mom left and being a abandoned you know put and isolated Mm -hmm. you know sealed away so i think that that idea is there the execution leaves a lot to be desired though i really really hated that scene where she like comes face to face with the ghost of sarah bellows and she's like i'll tell your story that you're innocent and that your family was responsible for the poisonings. So she like and writes a book blamed report. It on, yeah, yeah. So she writes a fucking <laughs> book report about it, and that breaks the curse. Right, and I think that is, I think that is insanely dumb. Yeah. It's insanely dumb because it comes out of left field, and again, that specific point has nothing to do with her mother abandoning her and the right. story there. Like her, the way that she takes agency has has nothing to do with right. That. Like and I said, it's it's half here's, baked. Here's the thing. Here's I see what, what you're going for, but it's all half baked. Here's here's what you could have done instead, right? There was an orgy of evidence, like, in her room that she loves horror. Then she loves writing horror stories. She likes to write. We, we see that. She does. She's, like, a journalist. She has, she, has a, she has a typewriter with horror stories that she's writing. And the, her friend tells her, you should submit your stories to the school paper. And she says, no, people wouldn't like them. They're too weird. And that's it. And then we move on. Yeah. Like, like I needed more. I needed more with that. I mean, ag- I agree. That should have like, been better it's, developed. It's that and that's it, right? And then we go the entire two hours of the film and then it just concludes with that. That's not carrying to, through a, a theme. Well, it's to set up the end of the movie. <laughs> right. Like, and, and that's the purpose it serves, especially when it's, it's, it's her sword. It's how she, like, slays the beast. She, right. she writes the story. All, all you have to do is, like, for certain moments, like, just have her comment on the writing. You know, like, have her make that more of her character. Like, have her address things, you know, from a writer's perspective. Um, I don't know if I'd want that, though. Honestly, like... I mean, that could be very poorly done. I get that, like, a lot of the the overarching story was half-baked. And I agree. But I will say, for a movie called Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, I was hoping... They would leave the audience more in the dark with the overarching story and not yeah. go into the details even as much as they did. 
Like with, you know, uh, like, like with uh, the pumpkin kid in, uh, in Trick yeah, or Treat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where there's sort of that connecting through line, shell but stories it's a mystery. Are fine, you know? It's a mystery like, in and of all itself. All anthology yeah. movies have shell stories, whether totally. it's creep show or I think anything they, else. I Honestly, I would be more okay if they just had cut most of that and went from story to story and maybe had bits and pieces, but have them much less I would have, or just, character driven. Yeah, or like any of, or, or just more of those nods and references in the dialogue, which is already overburdening, like either come to fruition or be like, like, let me see something. You know, like to some degree, but specifically with the family, I fully agree with you. And I want to make that clear. Like when I when I brought up the point with like when they're talking about the family a lot, like the drip feed of information is is well dripped, <laughs> like not knowing if she's responsible for it at what time and how we receive that information, especially like I loved I absolutely adored the phonograph, whatever you called that, the like wax cylinder. the wax cylinder sequence. I thought that was really good. I love that audio. It was very spooky. I, I liked how, how snidely whiplash the brother sounded. Oh, my God. I, yeah. What I didn't like is that the characters during that, like, took so long to, to recognize that he was the bad guy. <laughs> it was like, it's like in the first time you hear his voice, he's like, well, Sarah, you know, maybe we'll put you back in the basement. And then, like, he, he says, like, several more things and, like, electroshocks her once or twice. And the girl's just like, oh, she's she's so bad. And I'm like, can you hear him? He's a villain. Like, what and the like, fuck? She doesn't. She doesn't remember Stop what she dumb. did. Yeah. Like, like. Uh, here's here's my my ideal way to play out this story. I think because I I think we can all agree that the biggest problem is they put way too much effort into the framing narrative, and that it falls really short by the end because it's so half-baked. Yeah. I think the best way to do this would have been in the first 15, 20 minutes of the movie, set up a cast of characters, kids, you can still have the bully and everything. Sure. They find the book. Our protagonist takes it home. You know, it's Halloween night, and she's reading it in her bed. And as she's reading it, then we cut to one of the characters that they've introduced. And the story that she's reading happens to them. And she goes on to the next story, and it cuts to the next person. Right. And then the ne- and so she, you know, she reads through the whole book, and then it's like, ooh, that's spooky. Well, I, you know, time to go to bed or whatever. And she wakes up the next morning, and, like, there's all, the news is all over, like, all of these people in town. Well, and you can, you can and then roll credits. Have you guys ever watched any of like the Jim Henson storyteller uh-uh, series no. for TV? Reminiscent, like that. That's that's bringing up a lot of like old memories of that. We'll have to pull those up at some point. Well, yeah, but, even stuff but, like no, like, I, I Tales from, like the Tales from the Dark Side movie, like is uh, revolves around like reading stories from a book, and it like it's it's such a an ideal way to you, do an anthology. You can movie. even keep the you know written as they come thing for the last story you know just keep it for the last one don't make it the focus point yeah sure she gets to the end there's some blank pages and as she's looking at it it starts to write itself and then something spooky starts happening and then maybe like right before she dies or something we cut to credits like anything like that that would have been the perfect framing for it yeah i think i think you're right i think all of all of the individual anthology bits are great the scarecrow uh and with the bully the The spiders it's the spiders oh my god that was that made me uh that gave me, me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. I'm, I'm very glad that they they reduced the amount of screen time that the spiders themselves got 
because that that was like that would have been awkward it was all about the the pussy thing on her face and yeah. that's how it should have been that was great because like uh, cg like crawly bugs are always like just the worst in in movies they, they always feel really fake well yeah as she as soon as they burst out of her face the lights go, go out. yeah and we don't uh, see much of it which is the way to handle it yeah, yeah. agreed. like that was great i love that sequence um i did too uh to to wrap up on like our, our the last thing we're talking about too is like ben i i agree with what you're saying i think i think the reason like i i'm i'm so bothered by the main actors is because they got as much screen time as they did so i had a lot of time to stew over how much i didn't like it and yeah just more of the spookies uh, you know like you were saying tease like more, the more anthology of the anthology bits, yeah the anthology bits were because if, if you're gonna have i could see it really going either way and the film just met a bad middle either have less of the kids or if you're gonna have more of the kids go the stranger things route subvert some character expectations give me some thir- three-dimensional characters that i don't mind being on the screen when there aren't monsters yeah. like that's the thing like S- stranger things for instance has all of the same archetypical characters in it, right? It's got the bully, it's got the nerd, it's got the the Gus character from the Goonies. It has, they all have those, and then they have the comic relief guy, etc. But the difference is Stranger Things has a habit of subverting those expectations over those characters. Steve ends up being one of the protagonists, right? He's not just the jock bully. He starts out that way, but he develops. And I know, like, we have a whole Netflix series of Stranger right. Things for, for that for that character to develop. But that character served no purpose other than to just be that archetype. I think and, I think for this movie... And, and, but it goes that way for all of the characters. Well, the girl as well. Like, she doesn't really develop that much or change. She just goes through the motions. It just either have less of it or, or have it be better done. Well, here's the thing I see it as. You know, I can understand the comparisons between Stranger Things, but that's not the movie I was comparing a lot of the times in my head while watching this movie. The movie yeah, I, I was think about Stranger making Things the all. comparison to is the recent Goosebumps movies. Oh, yeah, which um, I haven't which, seen Which uh, R.L. Stein is played by Jack Black, and they are very much kids' movies and very yeah. light for the most part, you know, they still have their their minor spooks or whatnot. But, like, comparing the two, this movie was so much more maturely handled and handled its characters with so much less condescension and treated them like complex characters with motivations. Even though... The motivations some, weren't some, necessarily the best handled, no. but they... I mean, compared to yeah, Goosebumps, sure. where they actually have motivations to speak of. Well, and that's the thing is like I wasn't particularly bothered by the characters in this movie. They all felt very generic, but in in a movie called Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, I am expecting generic characters. I'm expecting the stars to be the spooky scary stories. Like that's what I'm expecting going into this movie, and I think that the movie falls short in trying to focus too much on the characters rather than letting the scary stories do their work. I think the best way to handle this movie would have been to try to make like a, a, a modern take on like creep show or something. Mm-hmm. Do it, do it like that. I could draw a lot of comparisons to trick or treat while we were watching it. I had very few problems with it for at least the first half of the movie. It's when it started getting really hackneyed towards the end that I started being like, uh, I don't like where this is going. And then in the last 15 minutes where it was just laughably bad. For instance, the blonde character, the one who was dressed up as Paul Nicella at the beginning. 
what was his motivation? What 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 drove him? What what was his purpose other than to die to the toe monster? He's the doubter, right? That's, that's and his archetype. His doubt has no basis in motivation. Like there, he just he is the doubter because the film like needs that archetype in it. He is the doubter, and he's like the logic nerd of the group. You well, know, right? They, he's he's the doubter because. If you're looking at it as if the film takes is set in reality, just about anybody would doubt it. Oh yeah, because you're be like you know you would too if you were in the situation. You would immediate you would try to rationalize. So that's why there always is the doubter in these movies, and he's the second one to die. So like his motivation as being the the one who doubts is is fine for me. Like it's he he dies to the toe monster, and like that's. Yeah, that, that's that's what he's there for. I just like he he goes to the fridge. He opens it up. And there's a big red pot in it. And he's on the phone with his mom. And his mom, and he's like, yeah, I'm just keep the stew. It's in the pot. And the mom goes, I didn't make stew. It's not in the pot. And he goes, well, someone did. And then he goes, and he puts it on the counter. And then his friend over the radio says, don't eat the food. And he just eats the food. Well, yeah, he's a dog. He's fucking stupid. Yeah. He's a moron. And, like, and then he deserves to die. And then yeah, so sure. that whole lead up for the sequence of him dying isn't scary. Horror movies are full of uh, dumbasses I mean, who I deserve mean, to die. They're pranksters. We were introduced to them as pranksters. Yeah, so, yeah but like, like you can have pranksters course. with a heart. Like you can have pranksters that you yeah, care about. Yeah, but if you're if you're screaming at that. It's I would fair believe to that understand his, that his, he would think that his friends are playing a, j- a yeah, joke on yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, or a prank on him, you know? Yeah. I don't I, think that's crazy. I, I think I would buy that, too. And I mean, goddamn, it's a fucking horror movie. Like, horror movies are full of characters that, who ha- serve no purpose other than to die. In horror movies like that, I think that's okay. And I think this is one of those horror movies. I, yeah. was, I was invested enough to care enough about the characters for moments to be tense, but not enough that I was like, oh, no, don't kill this character. It's like, nah, I want to see the scary stories. I want to see the spookies. Yeah, I I think you're right, and it's fine to have your, your cannon fodder characters, yeah. you know, the ones that are, are, are killed off because you're there to see the kill scenes right. and whatnot. It is it is a personal preference of mine that, you know, I would I would much, much rather have a character that I'm invested in or that has been built up three-dimensionally so that when they are ripped apart, they're ripped apart in three dimensions. Well, I think... And not just, like, it depends jump on the, scared. It depends on the movie. Because I, I felt I, the, the film, like, that's his death sequence, I felt his getting killed off via jump scare was, was all it could have been. Like, all they could have relied on there was to, like, to startle me instead of me to feel any dread over the scenario or anything else because I didn't care about the character. So they had to just try and, like, just, like, play the old, like, startlement trick on me of having, like, build up tension, play for quiet, you know, until you think monster's gone and then make startling, screechy noise. Like, yeah. and those those images, like, it's that kind, I don't... It's, it's I don't that know. kind of I, I will movie. say, like, the core of your argument is... Part of the problem I have with this movie is I think at first they were trying to do an anthology, but they were like, oh, we need some complex characters. We need some characterization. We need a Stranger Things, but they found found a middle ground. Yeah, yeah, a bad middle ground. And it just Mm -hmm. doesn't work. You know, either pick one or the other. Right. I would have preferred anthology personally. Totally, yeah. Because um, it's a movie for it because it's it's based on anthology books. Yeah, like it's 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 about the the individual self-contained scary stories, and when it's doing that, it is excelling. 
it's when they then halfway through the movie try to be like, well, no, we need to have it be about our protagonists defeating the evil monster or whatever, that that's where it gets, it gets fucked up and stupid. Yeah. I think either could have been good, but I agree fully like anthology would have been my preference. Your basic, your, your source material is anthology. So go anthology, Mm -hmm. I think. And like the stories are short, so it's not suited for an anthology TV show. It's perfect for an anthology movie. Give each story 15, 20 minutes, do a handful of them. And, and there you go. Have a very, very simple bare bones, overarching narrative that maybe like trick or treat becomes the final story. You know, the overarching narrative becomes the final one. I think that would have been fine. It's like just don't don't try to do that and then midway through decide like, well no, we need to we need to make our characters complex and and we need to make people care about these characters like nah, just just give me more of the spooky stuff. Yeah, it works really well in Stranger Things. I, uh, when do we do that? I fucking absolutely hated the very ending. Yeah. With her voiceover and saying like Chuck and Augie are still gone. But I just know there's a way to get them back. And I think the book holds the answer. And then it's her and her dad and Chuck's sister, the spider bite girl in the car, driving somewhere? What was that? Like, why is she? She still has family. Like, she still has, like, a mother and a sister. Like, why is she with them? It makes there's there's no reason for her to be with them. There's no there's right. no characterization other than that, up between the other two. Other than of them. that, she she was involved in the spooky stuff, and that like that's literally the only connection. Right, but like even then, like the it's uh, fucking stupid. Our protagonist, like she she isn't the one who comforts her like during no. the spider sequence. Like like they they have little to no interaction with right. each other. Like right. they could have built up anything. It's, anything are they was that supposed to be like a play to set up a sequel is that, that what that's that, what i thought a hundred percent yeah but what is that sequel gonna be it's gonna be so bad yeah like if, if so fucked up if true i, I hope know. if they do a sequel they just abandon the overarching story Same, and dude. just do an anthology i think it's gonna i think it's gonna depend on the the reception of this movie i mean it has been doing well i did see that it's uh currently certified fresh on rotten tomatoes yeah. i didn't see the score we didn't okay with that. Predict this, predict this one, but it is at an eighty on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, which is, that's fine. Yeah, I, I think I think this movie had a lot of strong suits. We spent most of this episode talking about the problems because um, there's a lot of them. There's a fair amount of problems. There's still plenty to talk about with the monsters, though. I wouldn't mind going back into that for a little bit. We don't want our poor listeners just listening to us complain all the time. No, uh, by all means, then, what's uh, what's something that you liked that you wanted to talk about? Holy shit, the hospital sequence. Oh, I thought that was great. Yeah, that, that was, was probably so my favorite great. part. It was definitely mine. I, I love how they set that up with him talking about like having these recurring dreams oh, of... The Red Room. I didn't like that. Oh, I liked that. I, I didn't I like, like that. that because Ollie just he just offhandedly mentions that when they're doing something else in a different scene. Like, he's just like, all right, it's dreams about this. And well, it had me says, saying, like, is there, like, a deleted scene? Like, did I miss something? Like, well, no, he, he says... Because the character doesn't seem hounded by it or anything. Like, he's just... He just offhandedly mentions at one point, like, oh, yeah, this bad dream about this thing one time. Hey, let's go talk to Spooky Witch. Well, no, like, no, no, no. He said he had another dream where this happened, and he concludes that by saying, I'm afraid that when my story comes, it's going to have something to do with that. I thought that was pretty good because it's vague. 
He says, I had a dream that I was in a red room and this like really fat, pale lady said, like, this is an evil place. And so when they go into the hospital and they're like, oh, yeah, the records you're looking for, that's in the red room. And he's like, oh, no, I don't want to go in there. I don't want to go in the red room. It turns out that red is just an acronym for like records uh, and evidence depository, evidence depository or something like, like that. that. But he runs off because he doesn't want to go to the red room with them, and he ends up being caught. The red room in, comes to him. The red room comes yeah, to him. That's fine. My, I thought that I, I, thought, I thought that was, it was great. great. I think <laughs> setting it up with talking about the dream is the way to do that. So there's it, there's this impending threat of what is the red room. I'm definitely know? not asking for like a dream sequence of him having beforehand. I definitely don't want that like just putting that on the record first but it's the the delivery of it that i did not enjoy they're on the porch they're they're ringing the doorbell and he just quickly spits it out and they move on they move into this the next scene that's an editing thing that i was talking about like they're on the way to doing something else and there's no pause given like and the the actor doesn't have an opportunity to convey that feeling until they're in the hospital I just I, I didn't buy it from the character like he he just he just kind of like oh yeah I had, I had this dream and it was it was rough and like I don't I didn't get anything from him emotionally it wasn't it wasn't very driving and it felt like telling and not showing I but mean, when they show I, I really great. didn't mind it it was just they, basic yeah, they setup. I think they even do a decent enough job of subverting you know with the records and evidence yeah I like that you know? too like I mean, he was dodging the red room and he wasn't actually at all yeah. yeah I mean I think another way you could have set that up is having him bring up that dream when they're at the hospital and they say oh yeah the records are in the red room and he's like oh the red room I had a dream uh that I was in a red room and there was this monster there. Like that probably would have been a better place to approach that. But once again, that's not editing That's script. That's, that's another script issue. There's just a better place to put that. But I thought that that creature design was fantastic. Another direct translation of, uh, one of those illustrations that I thought was really effective and, uh, him running from it in every hallway he turns down, it's there just a little bit closer i thought that was awesome you kind of gave me a silent hill vibe almost. oh yeah, yeah right. that very much gave me a silent hill vibe yeah. that that creature i and loved i loved the the moving shadow that like sets up everything too i wish there had been some payoff with that that was that's supposed to be sarah bellows yeah she's but, there controlling that's that's what gave me the final destination vibes uh, because that, yeah. in some of the later final destination oh, yeah. movies there is kind of like a shad you'll see like a shadow moving when one of the characters is gonna die when it sets up all of the complex rube goldberg things <laughs> so i'm like I'm like that's very final destination i thought that was fun i didn't think it was particularly effective it didn't bother me i thought it was just like ooh, fun spooky the shadow of death is looming you know no that was rad and oh, just the the design of the the red room monster very terrifying definitely uh, had del toro's hand on it quite that whole sequence really did feel like a, a, del, yeah. a del toro moment and i i liked it the most because it was the only monster sequence that didn't have jump scares it was uh, it was actually paced out properly it was and... the impending doom running from it but you can't get away from it right. i uh, i liked that a lot and it keeps turning and it's always there but it's not like played up as like a startlement or a jump scare every time because the monster does all the work for you and all the monsters do i, I think that the the jump scares were were arbitrary that's that's the other part like they I were scary the jump enough scares on their own. actually work 
pretty well for this type of movie. I mean, I didn't have any problem with I thought, the jump scares. I thought some were better than others. Uh, like her hiding from the brothers at the end was just a direct that, repeat yeah, of the guy under the was, bed. They just did the same thing twice. That was a bad one. The one where he pins the uh, the Jenga man to the uh, the truck and it like falls apart and then it pops up right in front of the screen again. I thought that was really stupid. I actually kind of like the cheesiness of that one. That one, that one, yeah, I didn't that. mind that one. That one didn't, that one did not work for me, but I, I thought a couple of them were, were pretty okay. All things considered, you know, this is the type of horror movie where you can expect at least a couple of jump scares. And, and they, and, it's and, the type that it doesn't bother me. And all either. things, you know, and I'm all not things expecting the witch in this yeah. movie. No, I, I wasn't either. I, um, I just say, yeah, I, I felt like the, all the, things, the monsters did enough. All things considered, work. yeah, the, the jump scares were relatively inoffensive to me. I was surprised by how much of the monsters appeared to be practical. Yeah, There's definitely yeah. some CG, but there was quite a lot of, like, Harold, like, the, the, the scarecrow was a physical prop. I think that when she has the big, like, the, the welt on her face, the red spot, uh, some of it was CG, but I think at the end there where it's, like, really big and she's, like, pressing on it, I think that that was makeup. It was CG where it needed to be. It's and, uh, my favorite use of I, it. I even think that some of the, the Red Room monster was practical, too. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. Think, I don't think all of it, but, like, when she, like, reaches him and she, like, embraces him, like, that's that looks physical that didn't look like cg to me and even the jenga man like some of that is obviously like a contortionist wearing a costume like yeah. crab yeah. walking uh and i i thought that i was really impressed by that because based on the trailers i thought it was going to be all cg i was like wow there's a fair amount of practicals in this yeah they use cg to enhance a lot of the time in this which movie, is the way to do it a yeah great way to do it yeah we got the the jenga man we got the red room uh, the toe monster. The toe in the soup, the way that's played up and it rises, it was very, very gross. I thought that and was cool. Excellently well, and, and, when and he, very well executed. When he first runs into his room uh, and it cuts to outside and there's no music and we just see that corpse like round the corner and just like start and all you can hear are like her shuffling footsteps. I thought that was pretty spooky. Uh, I agree the, the jump scare thing with him being pulled into the shadows under the bed was pretty fuck a pretty fucking corny way to end that. I think the idea was great. I love I love like him getting pulled like through the depths under the bed and when they pull the bed back there's just the, the, the nail marks. The nail marks. I, I thought, thought it was, was very cool. weird that they just walk into the room and immediately pull the bed back. Like they had no reason to think it was under there. And that's another like rushed editing thing. I'm just like wait what, what they didn't stop or like look anywhere else like what's going on and they just throw the bed back because that's where they need to look. I'm like, all right, fine. Uh, but I mean, the idea was fairness, cool. Was my in point. fairness, in his room, there weren't like they checked the closet. There weren't mm -hmm. a lot of other places that he would be if he was in the room. So, I mean, I, I buy them pulling the bed back. But, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll start the rating. Overall, I thought it was a solid movie. We spent a lot of time like really picking apart the few problems that it did have. For an almost two hour movie, I was pretty solidly enjoying it for about an hour and a half. So, which leads me to believe that if they cut about 20 minutes out of this movie, I think it would be pretty great. But as it stands, the framing narrative gets really convoluted at the end. Not great. 
where it really thrives is the little anthology bits, the actual scary stories themselves, the design of the monsters pulled from the illustrations, really top-notch. I thought this movie was pretty solid. I'm going to give it a three and a half out of five. I agree with a lot of that. I think this movie does a great job capturing the spirits of the book, even for its shortcomings, you know? Like, I think in a lot of the ways the books are similar where the the illustrations and the visuals totally uh you know carry some of the shortcomings of the of the narrative and i think uh we did harp on this movie a lot during the review but i would advise people if you're curious go see it um it's definitely worth checking out i would say it's a fun popcorn it's a, it's a fun popcorn fall, horror yeah. movie it's a good movie to take the family to even you know it doesn't condescend and go kitty with it you know yeah. it's still spooky even for adult viewers which i appreciated quite a bit but it's probably not going to traumatize your kids exactly exactly and i think for that it works well i wish structurally it would have been a little different but even like the structural problems i really didn't have as much of a problem with it as you guys did um, I thought it was pretty solid. I'm going to give it a three and a half out of five as well. Cleve, bring us home. Sure. I was not pleased or impressed by the actors in this uh, front to back. Um, I thought it was a poor middle road between schlock and sincerity and uh, that there was a lot of flat delivery. You know, it would have been much better off if they'd gone either full on anthology or if you are going to f- have focus on your characters to have them better written and more fleshed out and dimensional other than the same archetypes I've seen over and over and over. All that said, though, fuck, the monsters are awesome. They're great. They're very well executed. And, uh, you know, even with a jump scare delivery, it's it's well worth it. Those are incredible sequences. But the, the glue holding the film together is uh, not ideal. So I'm going to give it a three. I'm going to give it a three with you know, like a, a recommendation, you know, you know, I was, I was hedging towards 2.5, but those, those monsters are pretty fucking great. You know, I I have a lot of problems with this film, but what I liked, I I liked a whole lot. Well, that'll be an average of 3.3 out of five pods for scary stories to tell in the dark next week. It's Ben's pick. And we're talking about Maximum overdrive. I pick cocaine. I am so excited. I am so excited to talk about this movie. I've never seen Maximum Overdrive. Oh. Cleveland I seems to have some pretty so strong feelings against, against this. it. Like, it is, I'm being melodramatic. It is <laughs> one of a kind. It is a very special movie. Oh. I have a special place in my heart for it. I've read the short story that it's based on, and I, I Trucks in one of his short stories, um, his anthology series, and I, I, I liked that story a lot. And uh, all that I know about the film is that it was... The first and last film that Stephen King ever directed. And I mean, that, you know, and he's he's very ashamed of like it. And that Charles that has me, Lawton. <laughs> yeah, that has me intrigued. Well, yeah, but I don't think Charles Lawton was like uh, as ashamed of his film for the same reasons. I'm curious to see, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll go with it. But yeah, it's it's largely melodrama. I'm I'm fine seeing the film. I'm excited. I like. I, I'm I'm hesitant. Co- cocaine era Stephen King is some of my favorite of his writing, and. And I'm curious to see what cocaine Stephen King can do as a a director. I will say (laughs) Maximum Overdrive is the perfect name for that movie. Hell yeah. And that's all I'll say. And I'm ready to go into Maximum Overdrive. And I hope you guys are ready to join us next week for that. But until then, if you're excited, 
for next week's episode and you liked this episode, then uh, go on to Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and a nice review. We would uh, love it if you'd take a few seconds to do that. We really appreciate it. You can follow us on Twitter at PodPeoplePod uh, for, you know, general tomfoolery. And also on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash PodPeoplePod for the list of all the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to those reviews. And you can also check out our hallowed halls of the golden pods on uh, Letterboxd. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Van Awesome. Uh, although at the moment, I maybe wouldn't recommend it. Maybe wait a week or two. I'm <laughs> going through some stuff right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm at on Twitter at Mr. Sheets. If you like True Detective Season 1, follow me. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, you can find me tweeting for Light Arc Studio. Uh, at Light Arc Studio, uh, tweeting It Stares Back stuff very occasionally. I'm about to start tweeting up some more stuff, uh, probably a little after this uh, podcast has come out. You'll see some stuff about our new map editor for It Stares Back. Very excited about that. And if you're keen to know more and learn a little bit about some some slow, dark, spooky, meandering astral horror, check out It Stares Back. Join our Discord. Say hello. We're uh, We're pretty talkative in there. Hang out with us directly. Even talk about the podcast. Yeah. Um, you can find that. the link to that uh, to our Discord on our website at lightarcstudio.com, studio singular. You can find It Stares Back on Steam. Still only a cool $6, but it won't be forever. Pick it up now. You'll get all future content for free. Yeah, that should be everything. Thanks, as always, for listening. And uh, throw some more logs on the fire and get out the marshmallows. Marshmallows.